You're listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message from Senior Pastor Robin McMillan. Henry's birthday today, so let's give it up for Henry Squires. Also, um, I'm going out of town. I'll be gone all week until like Saturday night. Um, I'm going to be on some uh, television things and do some interviews about my new book. So I would appreciate all of your prayers. And um, also, Lisa Flynn, will you please stand up? I, uh, I want people to understand Lisa is one of our real sincere consistent, dedicated intercessors. And um, when we pray Tuesday morning, um, there are about six or eight of us that come, and uh, Lisa's one of those. And she is on her way to Morocco. On a, She feels like she's on a mission from God. Her and the Blues Brothers on a mission from God. <laughs> and so she leaves Tuesday, and you'll be gone 10 days, 14 days. So if you think of her, pray for her. She's a really special person, and um, intercession is such a vital part of the Christian life. So thank you, Lisa. Bless you tons, and we pray for you now. It's awesome. And John Mark speaking next week, since I'll be gone. I think he would just probably repeat the sermon he already (laughs) spoke this morning. (laughs) Not really. It's all good. Okay. Um, my title this morning is, Are You Armed? Are You Armed? And it's out of Ephesians chapter 6. And I want us to take a look at, interestingly enough, Thomas was talking about some spiritual practices. Ephesians chapter 6 also addresses some spiritual practices called the armor of God. And Andy has already mentioned these a little bit. I'm just going to mention them a little bit more because I have a couple of stories I want to tell that demonstrate um, being armed. In other words, uh, I think about I think about the gifts of the Spirit. Actually, the Bible never calls them uh, gifts; they call them spirituals. And when I mean the gifts of the Spirit, I'm talking about tongues, interpretation, healing, miracles, that whole, that whole batch. And for me to be sent out into the world without being empowered by the Spirit, um, you're actually being sent into a war zone and you're ill-equipped to never mind prevail, you're ill-equipped to even defend yourself. And so I think we need to pay close attention to what the Bible tells us about um, our uh, spiritual weapons. Um, and I, I'm not going to do them justice this morning, but I think we'll begin to see how important they are. So let's read this together out of Ephesians chapter 6. How many of you will read this with me? I'm sorry. How many of you will read this with me? <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Now, my beloved ones, I have saved these most important truths for last. Be supernaturally infused with strength through your life union with the Lord Jesus. Stand victorious 
with the force of his explosive power flowing in and through you. Let's stop a second. What are the first two words in verse 11? Put on. What pronoun is silent? You. Now, what that tells me is none of these things are automatic. All of these things are things, uh, concepts, ideas, or practices you need to adapt or adopt. And if you're in a mess before you adapt or adopt, you're going to be playing catch-up. So I think we're going to see this over and over and over through this passage that Paul is telling us this is what we should do. And um, too many passive Christians put on God's complete set of armor provided for us so that you will be protected as you fight against the strategies of the accuser. And I like to make that point. Accusation and slander are two of the primary ways the devil tries to destroy us. It's through accusation and slander. And accusation and slander are killing someone without drawing blood. Basically what it is, it's a spiritual form of murder. And the devil wants to kill people one way or the other. And the reason I'm making this point is there's so many people that get sucked into the whole political arena with accusation and slander and begin to join in. But you should never say anything about anyone else that's secondhand, number one. And just because it's firsthand doesn't mean you should say it at all. And then there's this really, really scary concept that God really believes is true. It's called reaping what you sow. Many people don't feel the love of God because of all the accusation and slander they have sown. Does that make sense? And, and my whole primary mode this morning is to help somebody, please. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not trying to criticize. I'm not finding fault. I'm just saying, listen, um, these are some of the things I've learned. I'm no hero at this. I'm a learner. But you have the same potential to excel that I have. We all have that same potential. It's just a matter if we will pay attention and allow the Lord to work in our lives because he is amazing kind of Lord. He's the Lord that refuses to take over. Eventually he will. But he's the Lord who refuses to take over, although he is still Lord. He's looking for people that will bow to his Lordship, people that will choose to come under who it is and what he is, uh, because that takes humility. And, and usually nobody's humble until they get in a mess, right? Nobody's looking for an answer until they know they don't have it. And so a lot of us have to go through heartache before we realize maybe being a Christian, maybe there's more to it. Maybe we need Jesus more than we knew we knew, uh, knew we did. So, strategies of the accuser. Verse 12, your hand-to-hand combat is not with human beings, but with the highest principalities and authorities operating in rebellion under the heavenly realms. For they are powerful class of demon gods and evil spirits that hold this dark world in bondage. 
Because of this, you must wear all the armor that God provides. So you're protected as you confront the slanderer, for you are destined for all things and will rise victorious. Now let me say this. We have evidence here that a lot of what um, we're battling um, are not physical assaults, although a time could come where you are physically assaulted for your faith. But primarily what Paul is doing is he's talking about the bombardment you have in your mind. This constant flow of um, even either voluntary or involuntary information that is not doing you any good. It's usually making you depressed or angry or frightened. And so Paul talks about this. We must wear all the armor that God provides so that we're protected as we confront the slanderer. Well, you think about the devil being the slanderer. How many of you have ever confronted the devil literally face to face? And I use the word literal, literally. Probably none of us have ever exactly faced the incarnated devil face to face. How is it then that we're confronting the slanderer? It's because as a prince of the power of the air, he's got a radio station that's pretty powerful. He's putting lots of stuff out there, and he, he's a fisherman. He's looking to see who will bite. How do you bite? You bite by believing whatever it is he's putting out there. And it will only harm you to the degree you eat it. Or believe it, if you want to put it in those terms. Everybody okay? Okay. Put on the belt. Okay. Slanderer, for you are destined. Oh, this is awesome. What's your destiny? For you are destined for all things and will rise. Oh, I'm sorry. I got to reading this by myself and sort of not at all. Verse 14. Put on... Truth as a belt to strengthen you to stand in triumph. Put on holiness as a protective armor that covers your heart. Stand on your feet alert, then you will always be ready to share the blessings of peace. In every battle, take faith as your wraparound shield, for it is able to extinguish the blazing arrows coming at you from the evil one. Embrace the power of salvation's full deliverance like a helmet to protect your thoughts from lies and take the mighty razor-sharp spirit sword of the spoken word of God. Pray passionately in the spirit as you constantly intercede with every form of prayer at all times. Pray the blessings of God upon all his believers. So there's a lot in that, and um, I think that's really that uh, that portion is well worthy of anybody really just giving themselves to it. If you're talking about having a difficult time, if you're talking about being beat up spiritually, well, Paul gives some great uh, revelation and insight into how you can avoid um, being being beat up. It's great. Um couple of notes. We're in hand-to-hand combat on a daily basis, but not with people. People aren't the problem. It's the demonic realm that's the problem. Now, the problem is the demonic realm used the people. 
but your problem is still not the people. Do you understand what I mean? You cannot personalize uh, or demonize people because of the influences. You need, you need to know how to, to, uh, to relate to them properly, but you shouldn't demonize them. But it's with spiritual forces that operate in the realm of the mind, the realm of the soul, the feeling realm, and it's stuff that goes through the atmosphere. How many of you realize Satan's called the prince of the power of the air? Prince of the power of the air. So, when I think about this whole accusation tactic that the devil uses, it's ingenious. And I say it's ingenious because if we don't understand how to relate to being accused or being slandered, and I don't even mean publicly. How many of you have know what it is to be accused and slandered and you're not even talking to humans is something that just goes on inside. How many of you understand? Wave at me for real. I need to know I'm talking, talking to the right people. Okay, that you understand. Well, one of the things that happens is when you get an accusation working on you, the, the, um, the normal thing to do is to defend yourself. But there's a problem with defending yourself in that spiritual dimension. When you defend yourself, you can actually fall into the very trap the devil is trying to capture you in, which is to make you justify yourself instead of trusting the justification that comes from being a believer. Now, you may think that's tricky. Well, it is tricky, but let me tell you something very clearly. That's exactly what goes on. Because the minute you begin to defend your own righteousness, the devil has a deeper grip in your life than you realize. I remember, uh, I don't know if Andy will remember having said this, but I remember he mentioned this several months ago. He, he made the comment that you... Agree with your adversary quickly. And the, quiz, the very quickest way to diffuse an accusation from the, the devil is to agree with them. What, what could he say about you? What could he say about you that isn't accurate, at least on the potential level? Come on. How many of you have not murdered anyone? Well, let's go deeper. Hated anyone. How many of you have never hated anyone? Well, you're a murderer, by the way, in that realm. Come on. Come on. One of the quickest ways to get the devil off your back is to agree with him. But then say, my justification comes from God justified, forgiven. Thomas Torrey stood up here and said, you are forgiven. That is right. That is, the, that is the attitude and the action and the provision God has given from, for every believer, every repentant believer. Your sins have been completely washed away. So when you get con condemned, when you get accused, you need to go back to the place where you got free to start with, where is, where, uh, which is the cross, confession, and repentance. Anyway, to some people I think that will 
make, make a lot more sense. But God is our justifier. What does it say over in 1 John? That he is not just just to forgive our sins, but he is the justifier of all of them that believe in Jesus. And, um, but here's what happens. When you get accused, if you don't have your armor on, if you don't understand how your salvation works mechanically, so to speak, you will do several things. You will defend yourself. You will justify yourself, and the whole time you're doing that, you're growing weaker and weaker spiritually until finally you'll shift the blame and make it somebody else's fault because you're tired of struggling under this burden. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah, you shift the blame. Well, it can't possibly be my fault. So when you look at the armor, the belt of truth, Paul says, put it on, verse 14, Truth brings peace and security. John eight thirty two, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. There is a potency in the truth. There is a defense in the truth. There is a resilience in believing, acknowledging, and adhering to the truth. Romans fifteen thirteen. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. In believing the truth that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Here is what happens when you lie and deceive, your conscience weakens, and you become open to deception, compromise, and destruction. A pastor, a spiritual mentor friend of mine who's gone on to be with the Lord, but he's actually preached for over 80 years, named Arthur Burt. He used to say, only deceivers can be deceived. The problem with being deceptive, the problem with not being honest, is it opens you up to being deceived and not know it. How many, how many deceived people do we have in here today? We've got a couple of people raising their hand. I was hoping no one would raise my hand so that I could say, I know there's, <laughs> because one of the characteristics of deception is you don't think you are. So we need this love for the truth. My dad used to say, Robin, if you will always tell the truth, you won't have to remember what you say. You won't have to remember. But if you lie, you better write it down. <laughs> Okay, the breastplate of holiness is said in, uh, this is also in verse 14. Um, King James calls it the breastplate of righteousness. And the idea there is of doing the right thing, of putting on a lifestyle where you do the right thing. If you walk in righteousness, which means living the right way, if you're being honorable in your heart and in your relationships, it keeps your heart free from the condemnation of the devil. It keeps your heart free from his accusation. It keeps your heart free from his slanders and his lies. I cannot emphasize that. It says over, I think, in First Timothy, it says, For they did not receive the love of the truth. And the thing about the love of the truth is you need to love the truth to the degree that you apply it as much to yourself as you do other people. Because anybody can be a critic. Being a critic of someone else's behavior is not necessarily being truthful. Now, 
The next thing is about sharing the gospel. Stand on your feet alert. A lot of people are weak in their faith because they never tell anybody else about Jesus. Let me put that another way. A lot of people are weak in their faith because they never tell anybody else about Jesus. We should ask ourselves this question. When was the last time I went out of my way, felt embarrassed, decided to do it anyway and tell somebody about Jesus? When's the last time you did that? But that's an aspect of what it is to be strong, to share your faith. I can remember years ago at the Lamb's Chapel, we were a highly embarrassing group. Any time, we took our Bibles everywhere. We gave out Jesus Loves You card, 100,000 of them, all over everywhere. And we never ate in public without singing a blessing. And it was good and bad. It, it was, it's time self-righteous. <laughs> the other times it was pretty bold. Anyway. Wrap around shield of faith. Now here's the thing about faith. Faith, this is the kind of faith I think we need to consider. And I'm not making myself the hero here, but this is just... Uh, who was it? Stuart? No, I was eight with Stuart Clark the other day. Matt Peterson came and then Stuart left. But walking out of um, Harper's, I looked at this lady uh, who was young, uh, probably early 20s. And um, I just said to her, uh, you're very interested in math, aren't you? Now, that was my hello. Now, that, that can be very awkward. I grant you that. And she said, well, I'm a, I'm a math major in school. And I said, well, do you know why I told you you were very interested in math? She said, no. I said, it's because the Lord told me, and he wants you to do something with it. Now, I don't do that all the time. But there are times I realize I should. And that's an aspect of building up your faith. You don't have to be obnoxious. You need to learn a good way to relate to people. You don't need to, you know, beat them over the head with the Bible. But we need to share our faith. Is, is our faith worth anything? Is it meaningful? Have you been saved? And I don't mean just in the traditional not going to hell this week category, but I mean have you been pulled out of trouble? Has God reversed your difficulty? Is he real? He becomes more real the more we talk about how real he really is. So a lot of us can become weak because we've been weak in faith. Weak in faith. Now there was the time um, in the parking lot at this restaurant over near Central Piedmont I got out of my card and I, a car, and I was going to give this lady a Jesus loves you card. And she started screaming at the top of her lungs. And I think she was saying something about feathers. Feather. And I thought, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I was just trying to tell you about Jesus. She said, oh, oh, well, I was quoting Psalm 91. 
<laughs> Out of fear, I thought you were going to mug me. I just got back from New York, she said. <laughs> but see, it was not an effective testimony, but it made a really good story. So that still got something out of it. But faith is a persuasion that certain trustworthy facts are true. It has the capacity to extinguish blazing arrows of the devil. How many of you have ever felt those searing, serious, frightening zingers from Satan of fear, of condemnation, of guilt, or of doubt? Well, if you have the shield of faith on, it won't get through. Salvation like a helmet, knowing that you're justified, knowing that you're forgiven, knowing that you're God's child, protects your mind from so many doubts and fears that the devil life and people try to throw your way. And then there's a sort of the spirit, the spoken word of God it calls in the Passion Translation. I think all of us need to know enough about the Bible that we can speak it. We need to know enough about the Bible that when we're in certain jams, we can speak words that fit that situation to help us. Um, One of my most favorite portions I just mentioned is Psalm 91. He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty, whose power no evil foe shall withstand. I will say of the Lord, he's my refuge, he's my fortress, he's my God On him will I lean and rely, and in him shall I confidently trust, for surely then he shall deliver me from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. And I I know that by rote because I've said it so many times. I walked the block in one church for five years, and so for five years, every Sunday morning before church, I would read those portions out loud. Someone asked me why. It's a great antidote to depression. How many of you have to deal with depression? How many have to deal with things coming at your mind? Well, you need to practice substitution. You need to substitute other thoughts. You need to ask. Matter of fact, one of the reasons I believe Psalm 91 is so significant is after Jesus was in the desert for 40 days, the devil attacked him on the basis of attacking the truth of Psalm 91, which indicates to me that psalm may be one of the most powerful 14 verses of Scripture in the entire Bible. In the first two verses alone, four different different names of God appear. And the other night I felt like the Lord said, why do you think four different names appear? of my names appear in the first two verses of Psalm 91. And I said, I don't know. And he said, because there's a whole lot to me. There's a whole lot more to God than we know. He wants to help us more than we know. Anyway. Now, let's, I want to quote 1 Corinthians 13, 13. Let's read that. Let's stand up. Is it up there? Stand up. I have a few more minutes. That's good. And now, abide. Faith, hope, love, these three, 
but the greatest of these is love. Okay, you can be seated. I'll just give you a little break. So what we find here, faith, hope, and love, are our three most significant, powerful, protective attributes we can have as Christians. One guy called these the three necessities in life. Three main elements in Christian character. Absolutely necessary graces we must have to live productive lives. When the smoke clears or in the midst of tribulation, these three remain. That's where that shows up uh, in 1 Corinthians 13. If you look to the context of 1 Corinthians 13, right after it says um, knowledge will fail, but basically... Uh, only these three remain or abide. That's what that point was. It, it abide after everything is said and done. After everything fails and falls apart, guess what still remains or abides? Faith, hope, and love. But they're different. Faith, hope, and love are different. They're similar, but they're different. Last summer, I felt like the Lord was speaking to me about faith, hope, and love, and I felt like he said they were like three sisters. They're related to each other, but they're different from each other. And as I was thinking about it, I came up with this. Here's what hope says. Hope says, I know things will work out. I just don't know how or when. So what does hope say? Let's say that together. I know things will work out. I just don't know how or when. That's what hope says. Now her sister Faith says, things have already worked out. Things have already, what does Faith say? Things have already worked out. Parentheses, even before they do an actual experience. That's what Faith says. Hope says, I know it's going to happen. I don't know when. Faith says, it's already happened. When in actual fact, it hasn't in actual experience. The just shall live by faith. Calling those things that are not as though they were. Are, were, whatever. But those are aspects, certain aspects of faith, which is different from hope. Hope is this expectation of good. Now, the interesting thing is that faith is the substance of things hoped for. So you will never have faith any greater than the hope you've nurtured in your life. And so the most important thing you can nurture in your life, if you're interested in being a man and woman of faith, is hope. Because faith comes out of hope. hope faith is the substance of things hoped for. And then love. What does love say? Love says, even if they don't work out, even if I don't understand what's going on, nothing can separate me from the affection God has for me. And the Bible says, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of those is love. Now, I think we can misunderstand what that means. I think what that means is you can lose hope, you can lose faith, but if you continue to abide in the place where not you love God, but where you know God loves you, that love has the capacity to restore to you both your hope and your faith. 
It's the most essential ingredient in that whole package. Hope says, I know things are going to work out. I just don't know when. Faith says, they've already worked out. They sound like they're arguing. (laughs) Love says, even if they don't. (laughs) Nothing can separate me from feeling the love of God. I like that. Faith says it's done. Hope says I expect it. Love says, whatever. (laughs) Not really. But hope sustains us until faith obtains a breakthrough. Love keeps us when understanding fails us. Okay, I've said that some. That's, That's interesting. Now, okay, I was going to talk about how you cultivate faith, how you cultivate hope. And how you cultivate love, but I'm not going to do that. Because I want to tell you a couple of stories. And these stories are out of uh, Donna and my life. And what they prove is, as we learn, this armor can work. The first one I'm going to call the miracle child delivery. For 20 years I worked as a salesman spending hours in the car, traveling from client to client, from city to city. Often I would listen to Bible teachers on the radio as I drove. One morning, I was listening to J. Vernon McGee. Anybody ever heard J. Vernon McGee? Sort of a country character, interesting guy, though. So I was listening to J. Vernon McGee, and it was because Ken Hagen wasn't on the radio then, so I was going with J. Vernon. I stopped at a traffic light behind a dirty transfer truck. I pulled right up on it, and I noticed someone had written in big letters the word TEST, T-E-S-T, in the dust on the back of the pull-down door that I was looking at. And I don't know if this ever happened to you, but as I read the word, I had that inner sense that the Lord was beginning to speak to me, and I knew a test was imminent And the Lord was alerting me so I could pass it. Anybody have an experience like that where the Lord just speaks to you out of something and you you just sort of come to attention? Well, I thought, ooh, I better pay attention. Here's the cool thing about all the Lord's tests. They're open book tests. At that very moment on the radio, good old Jay Vernon was quoting Isaiah 46, 1 through 4. And then followed it with his own commentary. And this is what he said. Bell, he's talking about idols. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols were on the beast and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded, a burden to the weary beast. They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. So he's talking about... um, Here's how you know if you are um, uh, serving idols or serving the living God. If you're serving idols, you've got to carry them around with you. You've got to support them. But if you're serving the Lord, he supports you. That's what he's saying here. Then it goes on. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been upheld by me from birth who have been carried from the room. Even to your old age, I am he. And even to gray hairs, I will carry you. 
I have made and I will bear. Even I will carry and will deliver you. Then J. Vernon McGee said, and I'm thinking, what's this test all about? And then I'm listening to this, thinking, did I lose my mind, resist the Lord, or what? J. Vernon says, many people try to carry and support God. The heathen carry their idols and are greatly burdened by them, just as the prophet reports. But the true God wants to carry us, even to our old age, to our gray hairs. Yes, he wants to carry us. Will we let him? This is the test. And I went, oh. So that made me feel bad. Well, what was the test? Well, in the third month of Donna's fourth pregnancy, we, have, uh, we had three boys first, and then we're pregnant with a little girl. Fourth month, I'm sorry, third month, first trimester, her water broke in the middle of the night. How many women know when your water break, baby's coming? She fully expected that she was about to lose the child. Actually, in most cases, when your water breaks and you're, you're that early, you've got a 12 to 24-hour window to where that child will uh, basically be aborted. Um, so she thought, well, I'm just going to lose a child. Well, we remembered the warning that a test was coming. And here's the wonderful thing about a test. The test is not to harm us. Guess why God sends us a test? So that we can pass it and learn how much more trustworthy he is. The test is for us, not just to us. That's a great thing to realize. The test was coming. So we believed the word the Lord gave us from Isaiah 46. We gave the situation to the Lord. We called the doctor in the morning who wanted to see her right away. Upon examination, there was evidence of amniotic fluid being released, but her measurements were right as they were supposed to be. The doctor couldn't explain it. Having no medical explanation, the perplexed physician suggested that perhaps Donna had wet the bed. But she knew better. That was our fourth pregnancy, and Donna knew the difference between urinating and her water breaking. <laughs> Miraculously, the child's protective sac was still intact. Then in July, the Lord spoke to me prophetically. He encouraged me about some particular business problems and ended with these words, And as you rest and trust in me, so shall your child be born without a hitch. And she was. She carried the child to full term, and she was able to bear a healthy child. And both those words, carry and bear, and the concept of childbirth, every bit of that was in those verses of Scripture that J. Vernon McGee read that day. And so there's a lot to learn about this. Um, we use the word as an offensive mind and confidence-building um, thing. There's just so much. Now, here's one other thing, and this is about a financial miracle we had. And um, one of the problems with being spiritual is you have to learn how to be spiritual in private. 
It's not what you do in public that is truly spiritual. It's when you're righteous, when you're just, when you're generous, when you do all those things in private. The Bible says, God, if we will do those things in private, he will reward us openly or publicly. And so it's important to do things that we do before the Lord. So I'll end with this. During a particularly challenging financial time when my children were in college, I was pastoring. I felt like the Lord um, showed me that I needed to, to sow $1,000 into the ministry of a friend who was making a real impact in the world. Well, we didn't have money, so I decided to take $1,000 out of our home equity to give to the friend. We felt very foolish borrowing money to give away like that, but we just felt like it was the Lord. I'm not suggesting you do that. Um, but I am suggesting that the Lord can tell you to do some things that I would not necessarily tell you to do, <laughs> which has been my experience over the years off and on. But we really needed the Lord to help us in our situation and wanted to be obedient. So we didn't tell anybody about this, but we wrote a $1,000 check and I handed it to this friend who was really blessed. Well, that night, he told me at 4 o'clock in the morning, the Lord woke him up and told him to give back to me a check for $2,000. Is that good? But he said, but the Lord said it was seed for the sower. Do you know what that meant? I was supposed to give that away too. So you're going, whoo, man, I got double or nothing. And now, <laughs> But I believe that was true. So we gave that money, um, I think we gave it away to two different places. We helped a missionary, we helped a person buy a car, I think, if I remember right. So I went home and I told Donna, hey, this is what I think we need to do. You know Donna's such a special woman. She was all in. Way to go, sweetie. So we gave $2,000 away. And within a few days, another friend who knew nothing of our need or what we had done had a dream. And in the dream, the Lord told him to write us a check for $10,000. And that's what he did. And no, I did not give that away. <laughs> I would not be sitting here this morning. I would be on my yacht in the south of France. <laughs> no. <laughs> One of the ideas, Donna said this to me the other day. She said, Robin, given what's expected is not generosity. Generosity is what you give above that with a good heart. And that's what the Lord showed us to do. We, it really gave that way. Um, and the way the Lord preserved our baby. All of these different um, pieces of equipment, all these different armors are so important. But we have to learn ways to actually use them practically in our lives. And that, that really is the challenge. Amen. Amen. Um, I was just sitting down here thinking, um, 
And something I've come to really believe is that it really is good to trust God. It really is good to trust God. Um, <clears throat> I have tried not trusting God. And <laughs> I really don't like it. I really don't like it. Sarah and I, um, we haven't had a job since 2006. We left what we were doing. We felt called to do something else. And we started our own business. And we didn't have really any money. You know, and we didn't really know what we were going to do. And um, we, um, they, uh, the church we were with took a little offering for us because we were working for a church. And I told Sarah, if I ever have to touch that money, I'm going to go get a job. Um, and you know what's really interesting? We've had more successful times and less successful times. But, you know, if, if you wanted to compare how we were doing in 2006 to how we're doing now, then it wouldn't really compare, Right. But we didn't have a whole lot of anxiety in 2006. And some of the times when we were doing the best on paper, we were so full of anxiety and fear. Because I realized um, in 2006, we had only one choice, to trust God. We only had one choice. And time after time after time, the Lord took care of us. And we had some disappointments. We had things not work out. But overall, more worked out than didn't work out. You know, but at the same time, I don't want to go back to 2006. <laughs> Why? Because I want to be mature enough to trust God now. I don't want to trust God because it's my only option. I want to trust God because we have grown up and we have decided to trust God. But I'm telling you, and this isn't the fix, but it's good to know that anxiety doesn't work. And I battle with anxiety a lot. You can say, well, anxiety is not trusting God. You can say that, and it's true, but that doesn't mean you always have the tools to get out of anxiety. But I do think it's really important to know that anxiety really doesn't do anything for you. Maybe if you're in professional sports and you need you know, to know right now to get out of the way, right? But I don't think we've needed anxiety since we were walking around with wild animals that could attack us. Maybe you need anxiety in the wild. But now I, think, I don't think we need anxiety, but we feel like we're entitled to anxiety sometimes because we feel like if we're not afraid for us, who's going to be? But there is something about making a decision to trust God that at the very minimal, and I'm talking minimal because trusting God does so much more than just this, but at, the, at your worst, in, in your worst, on your worst days, when you're struggling to trust God, I promise you can say this to yourself. At the very least, trusting God means that you will make micro decisions that land your life in a better place than you are right now. Your whole life is built on micro decisions, on the little decisions you make moment to moment. And you can't necessarily affect those outside of having a thing above that you're reaching towards or that you're living from. Does that make sense? I'm not trying to reduce spirituality to psychology, but I am saying on your worst days, trusting God is still good. Even on the smallest level, even on that level, trusting God is still good. I mean, that's what I was feeling. I felt like I wanted to share that. I felt like, you know, so, uh, Lord Jesus, we love you. Thank you so much. And help us to trust. 
Help us to trust. Faith, hope, and love. Help us to abide in those things. We're not always good at it. But you are the teacher, and you are the leader, and you're the instructor. And you are the model. And you are, Holy Spirit, you are the helper. Holy Spirit, help us to trust. Help us to engage. Help us to live our lives surrounded by the full armor. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. We have ministry teams, correct? Yes. If you want prayer, you have something you want, um, you want prayer for healing. They do prophetic ministry as well. Um, if you're interested in any of that, we have people over here to the right who are uh, excited to pray for you and minister to you. So, um, uh, Anyways, love you. Thank you. Have a good Sunday. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church. 